Welcome to the Longevity Forum podcast, a series on achieving longer, healthier, and more fulfilled lives for as many as possible. In this session, we're thrilled to be speaking with Pat Thane, visiting professor in history at Birkbeck College London, and Andrew J. Scott, co-founder of the Longevity Forum, who will be discussing how an aging society has changed throughout history. And now to you, Andrew. Uh, thank you, Laura, and thank you, Pat, so much for joining us. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, as I say, I think you've written so broadly, uh, widely and wisely on this topic. It's uh, just fantastic to have an opportunity to uh, talk to you about it. And of course, you're a, a historian, a social historian, and one of the biggest social changes that we're seeing is this a long-run trend, but rising proportion of, of of older people, both in terms of numbers and as a proportion of the population. And that phrase, uh, an ageing society, I don't know, I'm, I find increasingly that sort of often carries a negative connotation, uh, particularly in an economic world. And I just wonder what you think of society's current attitude towards ageing older people and an ageing society is. Well, it's true that whenever the ageing society is discussed, it tends to be negative, kind of assuming that a shrinking younger generation has got this guy's having to spend its time and money looking after a growing ageing population who are all sort of dependent and not contributing very much to society, which I think is... Well, I just think, I know it's quite wrong because it it underestimates the enormous variety of the ageing population. I mean, it stereotypes everyone over the age of 65 or 70 as being the same and rather frail and dependent and useless. Whereas, in fact, it's probably the most diverse of age groups with some of the fittest and also some of the richest people in society, and also the very frail and the very poor. So it's, it's extremely diverse, and many older people make a very important contribution to society, and the more and more are staying in paid work to later ages, because they're fitters to later ages. The largest age group active in voluntary action in Britain are aged 64 to 75, and also they contributed a huge amount to family caring. We think of old people as being cared for by younger people. But actually, one in seven people over the age of 80 are caring for another person, very often a spouse, a partner. Um, and something like 25% of everyone over 65 is caring for somebody else. So and uh, and that uh, an increasing number of grandparents are caring for grandchildren, particularly as childcare has become more and more expensive in Britain. It's the most expensive of all OECD countries, and uh, you know, the people give up their own work in order to help their children look after their children. So I stress above all the variety of the older age group and not to stereotype them and to be aware of how much they contribute. Yeah, and that diversity is apparent. And I'd love to sort of 
digging around a little bit more about why we tend to lump older people together and whether we've always done that. I mean, it does also seem to me just an extraordinary way of seeing one of the greatest achievements of the 20th century, where you know we, we mourn the death of fewer children, we see fewer adults snatched away in midlife, and we see more grandparents and even great-grandparents meeting their, their, their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. So it is an mm. extraordinary sort of negative way of portraying things. So how does that attitude compare with the past? I know the past is also very varied and very long, but uh, yeah. from your own work, how would you answer that? I'm not sure there's been a great change. I mean, there is the kind of generalisation some people make that in the past, whenever that was exactly, older people were kind of respected for their wisdom and you know, for generally respected because they were older. I don't actually see a lot of evidence of that. And I think people have always been, older people have been respected if they did things that deserved respect. (laughs) And rich people were respected more often than poorer people. I don't get a sense that there's been any very profound change over time. That's interesting. And and would you say as a constant or would you say there has been sort of shifts and changes? I can't remember. I think it may have been. I'm sure it's from one of your books. But I think at one point you mentioned something how rising literacy may have led to a change in attitudes towards older people, partly because older people couldn't read, but they used to sort of embody perceived wisdom. And now you could go to a book. But do you think there have been those shifts over time? Or do you think it just has been this, this constancy that some people uh, are respected in old age and others aren't? But do you think there's been more stereotyping? I think there's been a certain constancy. I mean, I am sceptical of the notion that there was this respect for older people because they had all this knowledge and people couldn't get it any other way. And they were respected if they had knowledge. But, of course, not everybody did. Yeah. Um, So I think there's always been a, a kind of, if anything, probably a rather greater tendency to see older people as frail and dependent because they were more likely to be frail and dependent. They're not yeah. for such a long time uh, because, you know, they, they, they die younger. I'm, I'm, I'm going to think a bit like an economist now. As older people become less scarce, do you think that leads to changes in how they're perceived? Or maybe if we go forward in time? I'm just wondering that if, when, you know, if you're a 20-year-old yeah. uh, for 400 years ago, you probably didn't expect to become old. Uh, I know that you could do, but there were, the chances are much less than today. Whereas today, it seems you know, you've got a much higher probability of the young becoming the old. I wonder if that changes people's attitudes, but you, you think not. Well, I don't, again, I don't get a sense of any change of that sort going on. Cause it's now been true since, well, certainly before the Second World War, that people lived longer and your chances of living to at least your 60s and probably later, got very much, very much more. Because even at the beginning of the 20th century, although we've got this illusion that everybody died, but most people died at earlier ages. In fact, if people survived infancy and early childhood, when there were very high death rates, their chance of living into their 60s and beyond were really very considerable. Yeah. But as people have been growing even older in recent decades, I don't get a sense that that's changed general attitudes. I think probably people are rather afraid of getting old, which is one reason why they're negative about it. 
Yes, I, I do, and I do wonder. I mean, I, 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 so I'm, I'm just conjecturing here, but it is interesting. I think perhaps when there's a uh, a, a lower chance of getting to old age, you're rather grateful to get there. But possibly, um, uh, if you know it's uh, it's coming, you're sort of slightly more concerned about it. But I, 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 I it's just a, a fascinating issue. And Keith Thomas, mm. uh, I think, once made the point that our focus on measuring age chronologically is also a relatively new phenomenon, so 200 years of more admin and, uh, and numeracy and literacy. And he argues that led to uh, a bureaucracy of age where actually chronological age pinned down society's attitudes to you more than in the past, where there was a broader sense, well, you're old, but you could still be active or not active. I wonder what you thought about that. It makes some sense, because obviously since pensions were introduced, then it becomes rather more bureaucratised. But even if you go way, way back to early medieval Europe, there were fixed ages at which people were called up for military service, for example, or juror service. It's men, it doesn't apply very often to women. But people were very aware of age differences and how age qualified you for certain, usually public, activities. So since the late 18th century, we've had more of that age bureaucratisation affecting more, more people, including children, the school age. Uh, but it's always been around. Okay, interesting. And the other thing I often hear is the notion that we have defined old age more in medical terms. And of course, that predisposes the notion of decline, whereas of course over a long life, many things also increase well, hopefully they do anyway, such as you know, experience, wisdom, self-knowledge. Um, do, you, do you find any evidence of that, that shift in your own work? Maybe a limited extent. And I think old age was often, or people were perceived as old. Uh, in, say, early modern times, at earlier ages, because particularly if they were poor people, they looked old, they were more worn out by starting to work earlier in life and having poorer diets and generally poorer conditions. So people could be perceived as old, much younger than they are more recently, or than richer people were. So it's always been a bit flexible, I think. Okay. And you know, and I, you know, I totally agree. With you. I think that, you know what is striking to me, uh, looking at the, the evidence, is just the diversity and heterogeneity of how people age. So more than any other age band, in a way, that heterogeneity yeah. means that stereotypes are useful. And of course, with more and more people living lives, due and and longer um, than perhaps in the past, you know, given the. Uh, expectations uh, according to the ONS of living into late 80s and 90s. Um, do you think that diversity is increasing now? Yes, I think so. Partly because I know, the variety of life is increasing, the variety of things people can do. So now you've got you know people in their 80s and even early 90s running marathons and doing things that wouldn't have been thought of in past decades. And of course, um, the older age group is probably the biggest age group since, as we normally define, it goes in the 60s to past 100, whereas other age groups, childhood, middle age, are actually rather smaller. So I guess, and of course, the more people live longer and the more 
people stay healthy to later ages, then the more possibility of variety there is. So I, I, I'm, I'm 57. I remember in, more than 30 years ago writing undergraduate essays about an ageing society uh, and the challenges and problems it would cause. Um, how do you think ageing society is panning out relative to what was expected? Because another thing that sort of rather surprises me is you've got things like that horrible concept, the old age dependency ratio. It's mm. been rising since at least the 1900s in the UK. And no one really looks at economic history of the UK and says it's been a main driver of the economy over that time. But somehow, whenever we look to the future, we always point to the old age dependency ratio and say this is going to be a major influence. So I just wonder how you thought an ageing society was panning out. Um, as I suggested before, older people do contribute a lot to society, but that's just not generally sort of recognised. And the whole issue of the ageing society, of the kind of shrinking younger generation, the growing older generation, um, underestimated, for example, the impact of immigration of younger people, which helped to balance things out much more than was ever, was expected when people got so gloomy about the ageing of society. But I think the fact that Although a lot of older people are dependent, they become frail, it's only about 25% of people who need long-term care yeah. in later life. And as I suggested before, a, very, a lot of them are very active, caring for other people of all ages, be actually in voluntary work or in paid work. So I think there's an underestimation of how much older people contribute to society. And as there have been more of them, and more of them are healthier, the more they've contributed. But I just don't think it gets analysed and calculated enough. I agree with you. We had Tom Kirkwood on a podcast uh, a month or so ago, um, and uh, he said societies have always tended to underestimate the capacity of older people. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I thought it was a great way of putting uh, um, uh, putting things. And you know, the the myth of an aging society and the fact it's not panning out as we thought, precisely for the reasons that you're suggesting, is an interesting one. But it also suggests a conflict, doesn't it? Because if we do have these negative visions or negative narratives and stereotypes, there may well be constraints society puts on older people as well. Do you do you think there are, or do you think there is just more the stereotypes rather than the reality that is limiting? No, I think they do. I mean, partly, if people grow up being negative about later life, then they internalise all these negative notions and don't have high expectations of themselves in some cases. But I certainly think it's true that the skills of older people in, you know, even in their 50s, 60s and on, are underestimated, the capacity to use new technology, for example. I mean, when there was, I think, the first big panic about the ageing of society, which was from the 1920s to the late 1940s, it stimulated industrial psychologists to study the work capacities of older people. And they discovered that they, so in most people in their 60s were just as skilled, at, just as good at acquiring new skills as many younger people and certainly very valuable to their workplaces, partly because 
they had experience and they were reliable, often more so than younger people. But this sort of wasn't... And also, and the reason they took up this work was that the employers had such low expectations, and many of them still do, refusing to give training to people beyond a certain age. Yeah. Um, and just not expecting them to be able to, to take on new skills. And But the fact that there's really quite a substantial amount of research from the late 40s, early 50s, showing that they could, but it all got forgotten about and not. And I think there's still a tendency to underestimate the capacities of older people. Yeah, and even the, and the, the most recent current research just repeats those findings. I was unaware of that literature, but it's the sort of similar uh-huh. results you find. It'd be very interesting at the moment, because, of course, we're seeing uh, in the labour market in the UK quite a tight labour market. And uh, according yeah. to the IMF, one of the main drivers of that is the withdrawal of older workers. So yeah. it's going to be very yeah. interesting how, you know, I talk to firms and governments at the moment, they're suddenly recognising that the behaviour of older workers has first-order macro effects. So I do wonder if that'll be, uh, you know, perhaps this ageing society story with this large generation coming through into the older working years, yeah. firms and economy are suddenly going to realise that actually if they do invest in it, then they can realise something of a longevity dividend. Yeah. I do hope so because it's much needed. Yes. Yes, what's happening, why so many older people are retiring, I'm not quite sure to what extent it is that they're suffering more from ill health due to COVID. And also because it's there's such huge waiting lists for hospital treatment that may be affecting more I, as you say, it's very hard to know, and I'm sure yeah. that's right. You can certainly see it in some of the uh, health statistics of older workers and why they yeah. I do also wonder if um, you know COVID itself also led to a reappraisal of um, the costs and benefits of, of, of working. Um, but it is yeah. striking, given all the economic and financial pressures around pensions and the standard of living, that that's happened. So I'm not sure how permanent yeah. it will be. Mm. Um, and, and definitely needs to be uh, uh, supported. But I, I do hope, you know, what I find as an economist very interesting is that it's almost taken for granted that investing in health and education in early years is good for growth, which it clearly mm. is. Yeah. Very few ministers of finance in high-income countries have the same attitude for older workers, yeah. which is a sort of rather asymmetric attitude towards health and, and, and education. Yes, indeed, yeah. Now, it's nice to talk about the the, the Positives, uh, but of course, this topic also always tends to veer into negatives as well. Uh, we hear a lot about loneliness and intergenerational tensions being on the rise. Again, I wonder what your view on all that was from a historical context. Yeah, loneliness is is difficult. I mean, obviously, there are lonely older people. I mean, there's clear evidence of that. But there's a, a kind of too easy assumption that if people live on their own, they must be lonely. Whereas, in fact, again, there's evidence that many people, older people living on their own, are doing so from choice because they want to remain independent and active as much as possible and don't want to become dependent on their relatives or anybody else. And that they, although they're living alone, they're still in close contact with relatives and friends and they're very active. But, but, and there are a certain number of older people for whom that isn't true and, and who are genuinely lonely. But that's always been true. 
there have always been a lot of people who are isolated. And the number of people who never married yeah. was very much higher, really as late as the beginning of the Second World War. Also, the much higher death rates of children and young people meant that I think by the early 18th century, one third of women, when they reached 65, had no surviving children. So, that, so there was often really very considerable loneliness in the past. It's not obvious that it's got um, worse. But intergenerational tensions, that's also complicated. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very easy to assume that if the generations live together in a the household, they must be very cosy and get on well. But there's certainly evidence of abuse within such households, and they don't always get on well. That is one reason why some of the people want to keep their independence. There's exactly. also this story that's been around since, I guess, about 2010, of the baby boom generation being fantastically well off and with fantastic pensions and their houses are worth a lot. And they spend all the surplus money selfishly, whereas the younger generation are much poorer because they can't afford housing and um, they don't have such high incomes. Um, the older people spend it on world cruises and indulging themselves. Whereas, again, if you actually look at the evidence, a, quite a high proportion of the older generation are very poor. Um, so there's real inequality um, within the older generation as there is within the younger generation. Also that older people who do have money to spare share it with the younger generation, help their children and grandchildren to buy houses, pay university fees. There's quite a lot of <clears throat> lifetime transfer of income goes on. So I think the story of intergenerational relations is, is a complicated one at all levels. No, I agree. And your point too about just diversity of ageing also means, you know, the differences between the average young and the average old must be pretty small compared to the within cohort uh, variation. But the other thing, I mean, again, speaking to you as a historian, um, these generational labels are a relatively modern invention, aren't they? They're sort of the last hundred or years or so. Um, it, I mean, did society have these sort of generational labels beforehand? And we have the young and the old, of course, and various stages in between. But something about young and the old is rather different about you know Gen Z and uh, baby boomers because Gen Z will never become baby boomers, but young people can have an expectation of becoming old. So, is this a modern? Um, yes, I think it is. I think it's been an increasing one in recent decades. So we've got Generation X, Generation Z, and heaven knows what else. A sort of anxiety somehow to label particular age groups as generations with the kind of assumption that makes them very different from the other generations, which they may be in ways, but probably only minor ways. There's probably there's a huge amount in common across generations. I agree with you. Now, another topic you've written on is around uh, elderly care, and obviously it's a very pressing and important problem. It's also one that seems never to have been properly addressed, and obviously getting more acute, but I wouldn't say we've ever had a proper uh, solution to it. I just wondered what your thoughts on why that's the case and what you think needs to happen to change yeah. it. 
Yes, we've never had a perfect system. It did get better after the Second World War, but um, it always, there were always problems with it. I think, partly, I think it is sheer prejudice against older people that when governments, I mean, I, I have looked into this in some detail and come to the conclusion that government after government, when it comes to deciding on priorities of public spending, old and disabled people are always at the bottom of the queue. And so they never get enough spending ready to meet their needs. The other thing I think is influential when it comes to care of older people is an underlying assumption that families should be doing it, the state shouldn't. And the assumption that somehow families don't take care of older people, that they sort of stick them in care homes as fast as they can, and that they've got more and more likely to do that, particularly as um, younger women are more likely to go to work, for example. And again, this is always very dubious, because every time it's been looked into, families provide a great deal of care I mean, when Peter Townsend studied this in the late 50s, early 60s, he found families providing more care than public services did. And that, of course, has become even more so recently when the quality of care services has gone so desperately downhill. And it puts, families put a, a lot of effort into it, but put themselves under a great deal of strain. Particularly if parents look after somebody who's having dementia <clears throat> or some health problem that really needs specialist care that they're not qualified to give and they don't get much help to do it. So it's it's never been very good. And I think I, I think discrimination is part of the story. There's always been discrimination against older people in the health and care services. Oh, but I think also this, some, these assumptions about the family are important. And uh, are there things that we done to change that, or do you suspect this is just going to be a continually long-run problem? Well, it has been a long-run problem. As I say, I've, I've studied it from the 1940s to the present, and it's it's been better, a bit better at some points than others, but it's always been imperfect and there have always been lots of criticisms of it. But it has got dramatically worse, well, like all aspects of the welfare state, since 2010 and even more so um, since the coming of COVID. Um, I mean, the privatisation of care services, so more and more they're taken over by profit-making companies who charge a lot but provide and um, but pay care workers. I mean, the fact that care workers have such low status, low pay, terrible conditions, and now there's even shortage of them, of course, makes it even worse. So I don't, well, I would hope that in the future it'll get better, but there's no sign it's happening now. Now, across your career, you've obviously focused on a range of issues and not just within ageing, but also within ageing. Um, and it's a research topic I've come to more recently in my career, but when I used to sort of study GDP and public debt, it was fascinating, but it didn't sort of chime in with the course of my life. Uh, but of course, ageing is both, uh, an ageing society is both such a 
big macro trend, but something we all experience personally. So I wonder just over your career, how that interaction have played out in terms of how you've thought of the topic and your insights on it, or has your research just shaped your own views of it all? Um, it's hard to tell which comes worse. I think I've probably, as I've got older, got more optimistic about the possibilities of old age. I mean, by um, being aware of the diversity of people's experience and remaining pretty healthy myself as I've got older. Um, but no, that's wonderful. And of course, we do see it. And that's the other strange thing, isn't it? Whenever we look at these uh, estimates of happiness over the life course, it's sort of 40s and 50s that are the low point. And often that's the age group who most fear getting old. But as you say, there's, uh, you know, Laura Carstensen's work on um, the why older people tend to be happier and more positive is really quite striking. So that's, uh, that's uh, good to hear that you also think the same, Pat, being an expert on the topic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for sharing your wisdom. I, know, I mean, I, you know, I recommend anyone listening to uh, uh, do a search on on your books. Uh, that, I mean, just uh, um, the, the long history of old age. I particularly liked. I know you edited it, but also your work on old age as well. Your work on pensions and retirement and care homes. It's just a tremendous. I mean, what's wonderful about this topic is how it covers every feature of life and covers so many different issues. And to cover it both contemporary and historical, is a remarkable thing. So thank you, Pat, for your time today and also for your work. And I encourage everyone listening to go out and read it if they haven't done so already. Thank you, Pat. Thank you very much. It's been good to talk to you. We are very grateful to our sponsor, Juvenescence, which has made this podcast possible as part of Longevity Week 2022. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.